I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fourth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the rise of pseudoscience, the ethics of spying, the future of liberalism, the trustworthiness of science, the meaning of the soul, the origins of religion, and the reason why we're in this whole global mess in the first place. There are some questions that it feels wrong, even dangerous, to ask. In officially religious societies in the past, querying the basic foundations of the faith was a threatening and a risky activity. So today, asking why trust science feels improper. The answer is obvious. Science is the basis of our entire way of life. And also, more ominously, why risk giving succour to those heretics among us who don't trust science, or at least who cast doubt on things like anthropogenic climate change or vaccine efficiency? It's a perfectly sensible riposte. But as religious societies of the past have proven, ultimately not asking questions about our core beliefs can be as harmful as asking them. And if science is based, as it's claimed, on a rigorous, unapologetic and searching scepticism and a refusal to accept received wisdom, there's even more reason to ask the question, why trust science? That's the topic and the title of a book by Naomi Oreskes, Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. Naomi, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Now, on the surface, it seems that why trust science is an odd question to ask, but there are some very good reasons to do so. And the most obvious ones to start with are the various movements and institutions today that have almost intentionally cast doubt on aspects of science. And I want to start with those, partly because your previous book was called Merchants of Doubt. Tell us who the merchants of doubt are and what are they doing to science? Well, first of all, it's not accidental. It's really important for people to understand that there are organizations and individuals who have deliberately, consciously, and systematically tried to undermine public trust in science. So as you say, my previous book with Eric Conway, entitled Merchants of Doubt, was about exactly that subject, about people who tried to cast doubt on the science related to a set of environmental and public health issues because they didn't want the government passing regulations to protect consumers from dangerous products. So these people were people who held a kind of right-wing libertarian slash neoliberal political ideology that was opposed to government involvement in the marketplace, and they created an alignment or a kind of working relationship with industries that had a vested interest in protecting their products, specifically the tobacco industry and the fossil fuel industry. They're not the only ones, are they? You talk a little bit in your book, Why Trust Science, about the fact that, roughly speaking, 40% of Americans are creationists, or at least they reject the theory of evolution. So it's not just a kind of a corporate rejection of science. There's another element to this distrust of science, isn't there? 
Well, that's right. And like many social phenomena, it can begin with one or two things and then grow and spread. So emergence of doubt, we were interested in the origins of climate change denial. We know today that a very significant number of Americans, probably around 30 percent, and a very large percentage of conservative Republicans, so maybe as much as 50 or 60 percent of registered Republican voters, um, don't accept the scientific findings about climate change. So in our book, we wanted to know where did that come from? Why did that happen? Especially because there was a time not that long ago where, if anything, Republicans tended to be more pro-science than Democrats. So there's a real historical reversal there. And we wanted to understand that reversal. And so we were able to trace climate change denial back to a relatively small handful of people, really four men who created a think tank in the late 1980s that took up the challenge of challenging scientific evidence on climate change and then subsequently made common cause with with the fossil fuel industry. But of course, since that time, since the late 1980s, this phenomenon has grown and it's spread and it's been propagated primarily on the right wing of the political spectrum by right wing journalists, right wing radio programs, uh, right leaning journals, sort of business oriented journals that were pushing the ideology of market fundamentalism, that we could just trust markets to solve our problems and that the government should not get involved. And because this got taken up on the right wing of the political spectrum by a wide range of people, this was the message that the readers of these journals or the people who listen to Fox News or or conservative radio, talk radio, this is the message that they've heard. And they've heard it for so long now and in so many different ways that we now have a phenomenon where a very significant percentage of the American people don't trust science, don't trust scientists, and now tragically are rejecting vaccinations that could save their lives. I'm never quite sure what the percentages are, and I guess they differ from one country to another, but certainly a sizable minority of the population are anti-vaxxers. Where do you think that comes from? Is that the same origin? Well, it's not exactly the same, but the manifestation of it right now is very much related to this larger story that I've told. So suspicion of vaccinations is a very, very, very old story. It's as old as vaccination itself. If you go back into the 19th and even the late 18th century, when early forms of smallpox inoculation were developed, many people were very suspicious. People were nervous about the idea of putting foreign substances into their bodies. And particularly the early forms of vaccination, what was known as variolation, actually involved putting live virus into people's bodies. And so people did get sick. People would get smallpox, but they would get a milder form of the disease. So it was kind of frightening. People did have some reasons to be worried. So there was a legitimate concern about that. Now that got addressed with the development of modern vaccination in the 19th century, the Jenner vaccine. But even so, many people resisted vaccination. And actually in England, in Britain, there were Royal Society commissions that looked into this problem, trying to decide, should the government have the right to require vaccination? And that's where I think the modern form then begins to develop, because people have a kind of natural resistance, but the government requires it because it turns out that even though there is some risk to the individual, there's potentially huge benefit to society at large. And now we're immediately into one of the core problems of modern liberalism, right? The right of the individual versus the rights of the community. And so in the 19th century, the British government did require vaccination and actually had some rather severe penalties for people who refused to get themselves or their children vaccinated. And this is the argument that we're still fighting about today. 
does the government have the right to say you cannot put other people at risk? Now, the interesting thing about this is that, of course, the answer to that question is yes. There are many, many, many aspects of life in which we have answered yes to that question unambiguously. For decades now in the United States, children have had to be inoculated to go to school. People have to have a driver's license to drive a car. You can't drive your car drunk. (laughs) There are many, many things that we don't allow people to do because it puts other people at risk. And this is an extremely well-established principle of jurisprudence in the Western world and in many other places as well. But what's happened in the last few decades, particularly in the United States, is the people who want to advocate for individual rights over and above the rights of the community at large have turned against government because of this role. Because the government plays the role of making these choices, we have the extreme libertarians, the extreme right, the extreme market fundamentalists turning against government. And that's what we saw happen in spades in the United States in this past year with Republican governors refusing to have mask mandates or even legislatures passing laws, refusing to even allow communities to decide for themselves whether they should have mask mandates. And so now we have a deeply polarized situation here in the United States with about 30% of people refusing to be vaccinated, mostly people who are on the conservative side of the political spectrum. And those people are putting other people at risk. This is incredibly interesting and important because it underlines how the science is embedded in wider political, social and legal concerns. And it's also worth emphasising that at the moment, this is a very right of centre issue. But were we to roll the clock back 50 years or so ago, hostility to science was more likely to come from the left because science was associated with a military industrial complex. So there almost goes in cycles, or at least it doesn't belong to one part of the political spectrum. It depends on the circumstance, doesn't it? Exactly. And this is a perfect example of what historians refer to as historical contingency. There's no necessary relationship between science and any particular political perspective or point of view. But in particular times and places and contexts, we can see these alignments shifting. And I think what we've seen in the United States, when science, starting around the late 1970s, early 1980s, began to identify really significant environmental threats like the ozone hole, like acid rain, and now climate change, that was viewed with hostility by the right wing because the solutions to these problems involve government action. The government got involved to develop an international treaty to protect the ozone layer. The US government worked with the Canadian government, and in Europe, the British government worked with the German and Scandinavian governments to develop treaties to control acid rain. In the United States and also in the United Kingdom, the government passed laws to restrict tobacco use. So in all of these cases, the remedy to the market failure is some kind of government action. So if you don't like government, or you believe in a minimalist government, or you really believe that all these decisions should be left to individuals to decide for themselves, then it's going to be hard for you to accept the scientific findings. And of course, up to a point, one can sympathize with that point of view. As you said, the science doesn't tell us what to do. The science tells us what happens if we take various courses of action or inaction. But ultimately, the choices we make have to do with our values and our belief systems. It's one thing to say, if I want to smoke a cigarette in the privacy of my own home, that's my right. I personally accept that argument. But if you want to smoke a cigarette in an airplane where the person next to you is forced to breathe it, that's a different question. 
And so the problem with climate change is that the actions of individuals are threatening the health, well-being, and the prosperity of everyone on Earth. And then the question is, do they really have the right to do that? These are really important and relevant reasons to ask this question, why trust science? But there's a whole other tranche of reasons that you talk about in the book, which I think are very important to highlight, because sometimes science, mainstream science, gets it wrong, or at least is profoundly divided. And you came up with a number of examples that I hadn't come across beforehand, which were, I thought, quite extraordinary. Tell us briefly about limited energy theory. Well, thank you. So you're right, Nick. So a key part of the argument of the book is that it's legitimate to ask the question, why trust science? I'm not asking anyone to have blind faith in anything, much less science, but to have what I would call informed or warranted trust. And so in order to have warranted trust, we also have to understand the areas in which science has gone wrong. Science is a human activity. Scientists are fallible, like all people. Scientists make mistakes, scientists have prejudices, they have blind spots. And so in order to really understand when we probably should trust science versus when we might have reason for legitimate skepticism, we need to have a better understanding of how science works. And so to do that in the book, I investigate several examples where scientists kind of screwed up. Yes. (laughs) And my favorite is the limited energy theory. I'm glad you asked about that because it's an absolutely extraordinary story. So in the late 19th century, the idea was promoted that if women went to college, if they went to university, or, or particularly if they went to medical school and undertook the rigors of higher education, the stress on their bodies would cause their uteruses to shrink, uteri to shrink, (laughs) and they would become infertile. Now, this is a pretty bold claim, and if it were true, it would certainly be cause for concern. But what was the basis for it? Well, allegedly, this was a deductive consequence of the theory of thermodynamics, the theory of conservation of energy. And this is really important for people to understand, because often science is taught in terms of the so-called hypothetical deductive model. We have a theory, we deduce the consequences, and if the theory is true, we assume the consequences are true. So by the late 19th century, everyone believed that conservation of energy was true, and therefore it was put forward that then obviously you know, women had to be careful if they put too much energy into education, it would adversely affect their fertility. Now, the problem, however, is that according to the hypothetical deductive model, you don't just deduce a consequence, you then test it to find out whether it actually holds in practice. And you do that through experiments, through clinical trials, by collecting observational data. And the man who put forward this theory, Professor Edward Clark, who I'm sad to say was a professor at Harvard University, His sample size was about seven people, Mm. and it was a highly biased sample because they were patients who had come to him because they were suffering. Mm. Later on, when another woman scientist actually replicated the study with a much broader unbiased sample, she found no evidence whatsoever that higher education affected women's fertility. But yet, this theory, even though it was based on almost no data promoted by one person, Edward Clark, was widely accepted by the male medical community at that time. Yes. Now, not surprisingly, there were the few women doctors who existed at the time almost all objected. So this becomes part of my argument for the importance of diversity in science. Yep. When you have a homogeneous community looking at a problem from one angle, it's very easy for them to have blind spots. Mm. But in this case, a woman scientist was able to come along and say, well, wait, hold on. And to show that that theory was in fact faulty. 
And not surprisingly, it's a theory that's put forward by men and supported by men. And it, it's females' reproductive faculties that are going to be put under stress here, but not men by any means. Well, right. Whenever I give a public lecture on this, I always pause and then say, so why didn't they ask what part of the male anatomy would shrink? <laughs> <laughs> I think we can just leave that one hanging in the air, as it were. <laughs> There's another story, which, again, I didn't know this one. It was fascinating, about the rejection of the theory of continental drift by American geologists in the early 20th century, despite the fact it had been established 40 years previously. And if the limited energy theory points to how gender context can shape science, this underlines how national context, national cultures can shape science. So this becomes part of an argument I make that diversity is not just skin deep, that diversity can be thought of in terms of who are the people doing science, but it can also be thought of methodologically. What approaches are scientists bringing? Are they looking at a problem from different intellectual angles? And what I found was that in the United States, the theory of continental drift had been pretty resoundingly rejected when it was first discussed and debated in the late 1910s and 1920s. And as a student being educated in the United States, I was taught nothing about continental drift. But then I traveled to England when I was in university and discovered that all my classmates knew about continental drift theory. And that in fact, in England, I wouldn't say that it was broadly accepted, but it was at least entertained. Many scientists thought it might be a plausible theory. And so this raises an interesting question about why scientists in the United States viewed the question so differently than scientists, geologists in the United Kingdom, even though they had access to the exact same evidence. And by the way, many German and French and Italian mm. geologists are part of this debate too, but Americans rejected it. And they rejected it for methodological reasons, for reasons that had to do with how they thought about how we should do science. Mm. And this is something that we almost never talk about in science, right? When we teach science, we often take it for granted that the methods of science are known and not up for debate. But in fact, in the 1920s, there was a big debate in the United States about how science should be done. And the conclusions that Americans came to made them not receptive to continental drift theory. So there's a couple of important lessons there. One is that we need to talk about method. We need to talk about why we tend to believe certain methods are more powerful than others. So the idea that there could be one gold standard for all science is deeply problematic. But also because culture does influence how we think intellectually, we have to recognize that scientists in different cultures will sometimes come to different conclusions. Mm. And so one thing I do as a citizen, if I'm curious about a problem that seems a little hard to pin down, one of the first things that I ask myself is, well, what do the Europeans say? <laughs> right? You know, like with toxic chemicals, there are different standards in Europe than the United States. And so one place to start is to simply look and say, well, do the Europeans and Americans agree on this or is there a difference of opinion here? So that's, again, drawing us to this point where we'll end about diversity within the scientific community. But the next step to there is actually to talk about method that you just mentioned, because we, we've established that there are very good reasons to ask why we should trust science. Now, were we to have answered that question 200 years ago, the answer would have been the authority of men of science. And of course, it was men of science. But into the 19th century and certainly into the 20th century, that answer was replaced by the answer of method. We trust science because it has a reliable method. But there are problems with that, aren't there? 
Why isn't method good enough? Well, and it's important to point out method is definitely part of the story. So I'm not nearly as hostile to positivism as some of my colleagues are. Science begins with observation of the natural world, but there are many different ways we can make observations. And in the modern world, simple direct observation with our eyes is rarely sufficient in modern science. So our observations include all kinds of instruments, scanning electron microscopes, telescopes, radio telescopes. And the minute you introduce instruments, then a whole set of additional questions come in. How well are the instruments working? Are the instruments sensitive enough to detect the phenomenon you're interested in? Are they consistent? Are they reliable? And in a way, the same with the great men of science. I mean, I don't want to be read as bashing Isaac Newton. The great men of science were great, and they did a lot of really important work, but they also had blind spots, as the limited energy theory shows. So the argument is an argument for a kind of expansion that has developed over the past 200 years. Science has expanded. It has become more inclusive. It has become more methodologically diverse. And my argument is that that's a good thing, mm. that modern science is stronger for its methodological, intellectual, and demographic diversity, and that it will continue to become even stronger if we continue to work on and embrace those elements of diversity. Mm. One of the words that often comes up in this particular conversation is falsification, an idea that's associated mm. with the philosopher Karl Popper, the idea that these statements are meaningful and science progresses by, by making statements that are falsifiable. And for a long time, that was extremely popular. But you point out in the book that there are some significant problems with this idea of falsification. The simplest thing to say about falsification is that it's been falsified. <laughs> that if we actually look at what scientists do, so if we take Karl Popper seriously, which I do, it's not a true account of how science works. And the main reason for that, well, there's really two reasons. There's a kind of intellectual reason, and then there's a sociological reason. The intellectual reason is that the theory doesn't actually work logically. And it's ironic because Popper made a big fuss about the logical validity of falsification, but he was wrong. So the reason he's wrong is because if I have a theory and I test it and it fails, Popper would say, okay, the theory is falsified, you throw it out. But that's not right. It could be that the reason that the test failed is because there was something wrong with the instrument. Or it could be I made some kind of assumption maybe about the size, the magnitude of the effect that I was looking for. There are all kinds of different reasons why a test can fail, even if the theory is correct. So as a logical framework, falsification doesn't actually work. And then from a sociological standpoint, we can just say that it's just not what scientists do. What we see in practice is that if a scientist has a theory that he or she is quite attached to, most scientists will fight for that theory and they won't attempt to falsify their theory, but other people yep. will. Yep. And that brings into maybe where you want to go next. So I'll stop right there. <laughs> well, I do want to go there. But let me just put one other point of point about falsification, which is that, OK, people will admit that scientists, in spite of what the PR says, don't always go looking for evidence that are going to disprove their theories. People don't, don't work like that. And, no, and, they don't. And, you know, you do, you've got a theory and the experiment doesn't quite support it. You don't throw the theory out. You run the experiments again. Cumulatively, however... Maybe falsification does work in the immediate terms for particular scientists who cling on to certain theories. They're not going to allow much to falsify it. But over the long run, the limited energy theory was disproved. The continental theory became accepted science. So maybe in the long run, it does work. 
Well, I guess it depends what you mean by falsification then. If you mean, do scientists make progress? Do they learn things about the world and do they rule out things that have been shown to be false and and establish things that, as far as we can tell, are true? Then sure, I agree. I think there is advancements in learning and science. But if you mean falsification in the sense that Popper developed the theory, then you have to reject it. So, I mean, we could clarify and talk about Popperian falsification, but there's a really, really important distinction here, which is why I would resist going where you're suggesting. Popper's philosophy was a radically individualist philosophy. He really did argue that it's the individual scientist. It's what he called critical rationalism. And when people pointed out that many times scientists didn't do what he said, his response was to say they're bad scientists. And I don't think that's right. I think they're actually good scientists. They believe in their theory and they're fighting for it. Well, good for them. That's fine. It's fine to fight for your theory. But the crucial point that Popper missed and that many contemporary historians and philosophers and sociologists are now emphasizing is the social dimension of science. That that process of criticism and refutation is not done by the individual alone. It's done by communities of science. So yes, I stand up in public and I will defend my ideas, but my colleagues will say, but wait a minute, Naomi, what about this? Or how big was your sample size? Or how do you know that your sample was representative? And these are crucial questions, and they don't get posed by the individual being self-critical. I mean, in theory, an individual could do that, but in practice, they're actually done in a social context. And so this is what has led to the growth of what's known as social epistemology, that the strength of science doesn't come from the self-criticism of the individual, but it comes from the development of community structures to foster this kind of give and take, the criticism and then the adjustment of our theories or the adjustment of our beliefs in light of new information that is brought together, not by one individual, no matter how smart that person might be, but by the community of practitioners. So this is the crucial point and where I wanted to land this, because our conversation has circled around these issues of science being an activity that is embedded in wider, ethical, social and political contexts and the fact that the reason we should trust science is because it is a communal activity in which people are actively watching and questioning and challenging one another underlines it doesn't it and that then points to the fact that you need a community that's prepared to do that not only in theory but in practice and and is less vulnerable to groupthink hence your point about the need for diversity in science. Exactly. And that's why the social epistemology element is so important and why I would resist saying that falsification is the right way to describe it, because it is really crucial for the community to be diverse. I think there are a lot of scientists, people I've worked with, people I like and respect, who are a little bit skeptical about the diversity thing because they think, well, if scientists are smart, scientists will get the right answers. And the problem with that is that it's it's just an incomplete picture. Yes, it's great if scientists are smart and many smart scientists do good work, but you need this extra element of questioning, of interrogation. We're asking each other tough questions and we're part of a community in which we've agreed to that. Like we've agreed to be interrogated, that it's part of the rules of the game and we try not to take it personally. And sometimes it is tough. Sometimes it's not fun. And that kind of community engagement and willingness to listen, willingness to take criticism on board, Mm. and willingness to change your mind 
is so crucial, and especially in this moment. I mean, I wrote this book three years ago before COVID-19 erupted, mm. but I feel like now more than ever, I don't want to say that science is a model for everything because scientists certainly have their flaws, but the idea that we could listen to each other and take criticism on board and adjust what we believe in light of evidence is so important, not just for science, but really for everything. Mm. I'm very interested in hermeneutics and the study of scripture, of, of holy books, and indeed literature as well. It's become an absolutely accepted fact that if you are studying, for example, the Bible, you need to have a wide community of interpreters. Mm. This was the basis of liberation theology, because people... In that, that instance, the poor will hear some very different messages from the same texts that the rich are reading. And it's become accepted that if you're going to get anything towards a truthful and reliable and robust understanding of what this text says, you need a wide community of readers. It does strike me slightly that this is a similar point you're making to science, isn't it? You need a wide community of scientists to look upon mm -hmm. this truth. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but you make a good point. And maybe it comes from the fact that ultimately no one person can ever see all of the information in a text or in data. We come to any problem with prior beliefs, prior expectations, and those beliefs influence both how we interpret data and how we interpret texts. And so being willing to hear alternative interpretations, being willing to acknowledge that there could be other interpretations, not just of text, but even of data themselves. And this is where it gets tricky, right? Because a lot of scientists will want to say, well, the data speak for themselves. And certainly I've seen data sets that were very compelling and where it did seem that you would be hard-pressed to come up with an alternative interpretation, but to be open to the possibility that there could be another interpretation, I think is really crucial. Mm -hmm. And it also speaks to something I do believe strongly, which is that many people think of science as something very different from other kinds of intellectual endeavors. And people will say, oh, well, I don't think scientifically or, you know, I'm not a scientific type, right? And some people even put science up on a kind of pedestal that scientists are somehow uniquely rational compared to other human beings. I mean, I think that's wrong on two levels. First of all, I don't think that there is one type of mindset that enables a person to be a scientist. I've met and known many different scientists who viewed things from many different angles. But also, if you put it on a pedestal, then you're inviting people to knock it off. Yes. And we've seen that in recent years. So if you make people into icons, you're inviting iconoclasm. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you point out this is a human endeavor in which people are trying really hard to figure out the truth about the world, and the amazing thing is that sometimes it seems like we actually succeed. Which brings us really by way of conclusion to the very purpose of the book. I began by saying that for some people, particularly in our current climate, asking the question why trust science is an inherently risky phenomenon because they will see it as giving succour to anti-vaxxers and climate change deniers. And there are other people who say, as you say, put science on the pedestal and it is truth and it is self-evident and questioning it is almost some kind of heresy. And the conclusion you come to is that, yes, of course, it's absolutely vital. It's essential to our progress and our security. But there is no simple, straightforward, one-line answer to the question why we should trust it. You outline there's consensus, method, evidence, values, and humility, five reasons why we should trust science. And in a sense, it's a bit of a mess, but that's because it's a complex business. 
Exactly. And we historians always like to say the reality in history is everything is always kind of a mess, but you do your best to sort through the mess. I mean, I think the simple take home is that if we say, why should we trust science? It's because this is a human activity with a very long track record of success. We've seen a lot that we've learned and a lot that scientists have figured out that has held up to scrutiny. But because it is a human activity and also because it's a learning process, it will continue to change. And so a kind of reasonable expectation is to say, by and large, science has done us a lot of good. It's not wrong to have healthy skepticism in some cases. But if we're informed about how the process works, then we're in a better position to judge when we should trust science and when we should maybe do some more research. The book is called Why Trust Science? Naomi Rescues, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Next week, I'll be speaking to Cecile Faber about her book Spying Through a Glass Darkly. The Ethics of Espionage and Counterintelligence. When we reflect on those morally problematic practices, we are able to confront some of the difficult facets of human nature. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.